0: hi everyone welcome to the fullest podcast i'm your host nikki bostwick and today's guest is james freeman who's the founder of blue bottle coffee hi james
1: how's it going nikki
0: good how are you
1: good good happy to be here
0: thanks for joining us from ojai which is one of my very special places i absolutely love visiting and have spent quite a bit of time there lately. I'm a huge fan and I don't, it's so funny. I stumbled upon you on social media and I was just really interested in having you on because I'm a huge fan of Blue Bottle. I love what you've created. I think the atmosphere, the product, everything to just like the curation of the companies that you guys partner with to have in store. If it's not your own products, it's just so beautiful. And I know that it's so intentional. A little while back, I connected with your CEO there through a summit event and then just kind of stayed connected. And Was that Carl
1: or Brian? Brian. Brian, got it. Carl's yeah. the new CEO, CEO number three. Carl, Brian was CEO number two.
0: Wow. So yeah, the company's grown so much. And I like I just said to you, we have a lot of founders on. Our platform is a wellness platform, but we believe that wellness is a part of every aspect of your life. It's not just food and movement, it's relationship, it's a your career, it's creating something that you want to bring to the world. And entrepreneurship just really goes in nicely. And we have a lot of people that are interested in starting their own business or just making some sort of impact in the world. And yeah, I'm just curious, like what your journey has been and what your story is. And I would love to start with just kind of your background and how you found yourself in the coffee business.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, um. Gosh, in August, August 15, it will be the 20-year anniversary of Blue Bottle Coffee. So it's been a long, long road. Sometimes it's a slog. Sometimes it's a sprint.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. And
1: thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I was a, I have a non-traditional background, I guess you could say. I was a classical musician prior to founding Blue Bottle Coffee. I was, you know, a farmer's market shopper, was interested in you know, where food came from and, and San Francisco 20 years ago was a kind of a cradle of the farm to table movement, movement, as it's called. And I was interested in reading about those restaurants and participating in the food scene and the farmer's markets. And, and I also had a geeky little hobby of roasting coffee at home. And just the, you know, the thesis of the business was coffee is fresh food, right? And, and that was the, this big, this big compelling question, thought, impulse that I had was, why can't I get a bag of coffee where there's a roast date on it? You know, now it sounds very trivial. You can go into any grocery store, any little corner store, any cafe, and they're diligently stamping roast dates on it. But at that time, it was, there was a best buy date. And, you know, that told nothing. There was no transparency around when it was actually roasted. And that idea of when did this roasted coffee come To be when was it born was was very compelling to me so in my naivete about business i thought well how hard can it be i go to the farmers market i see what these people do they make a thing they go to the market they sell their thing people give money then they repeat so that's what i did i was kind of burning out on music and i had a little money i thought it was a lot of money but it was actually a very small amount of money (laughs) and started in very small space roasting on a very small roaster and the timing was very good the message was very clear and compelling not just to me but to people at the markets and then it just grew and grew and grew from there
0: so were you did you have kids at the time
1: yeah i have um a son who's almost 19 so he is one year blue bottle coffee is um basically one month and one year older than my oldest dashel
0: wow so that was a big leap to start a business when you're about to have you know a baby
1: yeah well you know shit gets real when, you, yeah. when you've got mouths to feed so there's no no uh, no beating around the bush um you got to figure out how to pay some bills and pay a lot more bills than you used to pay it, yeah you know, the idea of security the idea of securing a future for your kids becomes very compelling and and so it i thought it added a lot of urgency but a lot of clarity too
0: where did you start selling originally you know you went to the market so is that where you started
1: yeah yeah first farmer's market was the it was just like it was like this sort of ascending rungs of of difficulty to get in um, the first farmer's market i could get in was the old oakland farmer's market that was fridays between eight and two um it wasn't the greatest market but it was the one i could get in so i met some great people there just like me and a table and some forlorn bags of beans getting an earful about pete's at that time was this like pete's is this as dark as pete's i like pete's french roast is it like that (laughs) no 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 Um, but i sold some and then i got into the tuesday berkeley farmers market And that was great because that was shoppers, you know, not so much snackers or social. So that was a great market. And that led me to Saturday Berkeley. And that was very busy. And then by that time, I got an an espresso cart. Um, And that was great being able, you know, because people will pay a few bucks for a cappuccino and try the coffee, whereas they might not be as amenable to paying 10 bucks for a bag of coffee. Yeah. And then the, the biggest break about a year in, it seemed like forever, but it was only a year, um, was getting into the Saturday Fair Plaza Farmer's Market. And that was a, you know, a very important nexus of the food community. It was before this was all before social media. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So when journalists... Um, Came in from out of town and wanted to know what was going on at the in the food scene. They would go to the farmers market. They had to experience it. They didn't need to check their phone. They had to actually go to a place and and try something. So and that was huge for me. You know, just the amount of learning. I call that my MBA, right? And 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 the the lines were crushing, and hiring people and figuring out how to please people. Like all of that happened, you, you know, until five, 2005, 2006, I opened a little cafe, well, a kiosk on a alleyway in San Francisco in 2005. So basically from 2002 to 2005, it was all farmer's markets. And wow. then, then we added that little kiosk and that was odd and wonderful in its way, very different experience from cafes in San Francisco, which i learned a lot from still open. 315 Linden Street.
0: Yeah,
1: And then the first real seven, like four walls and and a door kind of situation was 2008 in Mint Plaza.
0: And at the time, you, like, what made you, were you profitable really early on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't know about, I thought, like, I thought you had to be, right? Like, because If you're if you're paying your bills at your house, right? Unless you're putting stuff on credit cards, you have to have more money at the exactly. end of the month than you started with.
0: So you were profitable right away obviously yeah. and yeah. the farmers market business helped with being that way.
1: Oh, yeah, cuz expenses were very low. Yeah. Labor costs were feeding me and then my <laughs> my um baby and I would say like three quarters of the food I ate was trades at the farmer's market. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so that was good. So I was living in a very cheap apartment. Um, and yeah, I just thought you had to be profitable. Cause like, how else are you going to survive? Little, <laughs> little did I know. So yeah, from the very first, and then a lot of people wanted what I sold and I was selling out and selling a lot of drinks and that's a good problem to have too. So when your expenses are very low and then the demand becomes, Crushing. Then the only then the only question mark is how hard can you push yourself to sell that to make that stuff and then sell that stuff.
0: So how did you go from markets and then the like um, cafe mm. to choosing strategy wise, like instead of food service, going like D to C and cafes?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. For for a while we did um, wholesale. I guess you could call that. Um, yeah. Yeah, B2B, whatever. And wholesale was exciting at first, and it was a good revenue stream at first, you know, because early on Chez Panisse served the coffee that I made, and that was exciting. I, I remember, like, going in for meetings with my son, like, because I didn't have a yeah. name or anything. So he was three or four, and my strategy was, like, buy him a little Lego thing, and it'll take him 30 or 45 minutes to
0: that's
1: what I do. Yeah. And then I can have my meeting. They were very, always very sweet to at Chez Panisse. But, um, you know, and then, yeah, I would, I would have, you know, accounts, cafes, restaurants, get in touch. And at first it was exciting and it was good revenue stream. But then, you know, I started hearing back, like, oh, I got a coffee at this place that's serving your coffee and it wasn't that good. And it's like, I don't like hearing that. And, you know, so it took me a few years, but I, I realized that nobody loves your coffee or that thing you make more than you do. Yeah. And so it took, when was it that we pulled the plug? Maybe 2013,
0: 2014.
1: Wow. That we pulled the plug on wholesale. And by that time, it was 25, 30% of our revenue but it was just stupid it was just stupid because people wouldn't pay their bills people wouldn't totally their it, you know i just hated it and and for a while i don't know really know what, how it is now but for a while it was kind of the dirty little secret of the specialty coffee industry because these these companies that had such good reputations as sourcing and making good cafes um maybe 75% of a lot of these companies revenue actually came from wholesale mm mm-hmm. mhm so when like, how, how much can you really say you care about coffee when 75% of your revenue, you don't, you know, you don't are, you're not exercising that much control over. So that was liberating. Saying no is liberating and powerful. So saying no to wholesale was a, a very liberating step for me and the company.
0: And at that time, were you, I mean, you said it was 25 mm-hmm. to 30%. So yeah that point where you you were already online with the D2C business or?
1: Um, the web store started early. Like I had this woman that cut my hair, had a boyfriend who like, he can do your web store, he can do your website. It's like, great, um, we'll trade for coffee. And so we had a very crude web store, let's see, starting in 2003, middle of 2003, 2004.
0: Yeah, when you were at the farmer's market still.
1: So. Yeah, and I would just like write out the shipping labels. Sorry, that's the ATV. at no, the bottom mm-hmm. of the rim. Write out the shipping labels. And the there's a post office across the street from my first roastery. Wow. And so I would just carry it across. And then I remember the first time, it's like, I need a cart. I have to carry it across with a cart. And that's cool. And then i remember i need to make two trips mm-hmm. cool. and then it got kind of old like i need to make five trips Let's <laughs> mm-hmm. go so but that's you know the problems of success are always better problems to have
0: hi everyone welcome again to the fullest podcast as you may or may not know We've been sharing the benefits of saffron with our community for a little while now, and I want to offer 15% off our entire product line to our podcast listeners with code TheFullestPodcast at checkout online at TheFullest.com. Growing up in a Persian family, I'd always felt the benefit of saffron in my life, but it wasn't until I stumbled on the research that it made me realize what powerful medicine it is. Saffron has been proven over and over again in clinical double-blind placebo trials to be an effective form of treatment for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years for these purposes, and now the research is here to finally back it up, proving that plant medicines and ancient healing practices can actually be an effective alternative to pharmaceuticals. At the fullest, we believe that incorporating this ancient wisdom into our modern lives is the most powerful and accessible path to healing. We also believe that everyone's journey is unique, so our product line offers a variety of formulas to help you curate saffron into your personal wellness routine. Warm Feelings is our saffron latte powder and comes in individual sachets and in large sustainable glass jars featuring 150 milligrams of high-grade saffron in a creamy bed of coconut and cardamom. It's the perfect coffee alternative and feel-good start to your day. If you prefer to pop a pill, Kinder Thoughts is our 30-day supply of saffron capsules, and it's a super simple way to support your body and mood with the power of saffron. Not to mention it's really amazing for headaches if you feel one coming on. Our saffron soaks are the latest addition to our product lineup, which include Exhale, our saffron salt bath blend, and Inhale, our probiotic rich saffron milk bath blend. Soak in them to support your digestion, inflammation, and support your skin microbiome. Honestly, at the moment, I'm using each of these products on a daily basis, depending on my needs and help you begin your saffron journey. We're offering a discount of 15% off just for our podcast listeners with code, the fullest podcast at checkout. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual. How quickly did it grow out of your hands and into a like 3PL? Or do you not use it? third? What does that stand for? The third part, or someone else shipping your stuff out? What what do you... I,
1: years, years and years. We did it all, all ourselves for a long time.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: I mean, I like it was an earlier time, but but also it's like we didn't have inventory on shelves. You know, yeah, it was posted, it was put on the box, and I had an, a real sense of urgency to get it in the mail that day that it was roasted. I wanted people to open the box and look at the day. It's like, wow, this was roasted the day before yesterday. You know, so it was that sense of urgency that kind of yeah. drove me to be inefficient in a very interesting way.
0: What do you think is the difference between like, is it the same customer that came to you in the beginning? Are they the, do they have the same wants and needs as the blue bottle customer now when it comes to coffee specifically, like beans?
1: I have to say, I mean, I haven't been super, I'm still on the payroll. There's one project in the arts district of Los Angeles that I think is going to happen that I'm involved in. Hopefully if it happens, mm-hmm. it will be very cool. Um, so right now I'm. it's kind of ambiguous. Is this a hypothetical project or is it a real project? So I'm not entirely sure. Um, so I, that being said, I don't know exactly what people want from Blue Bottle Coffee today. At that time, they were very much interested in just like trying the coffee because we were getting, starting to get like a lot of press or they were farmer's market shoppers that were said like, oh, I love this coffee, I'm gonna send it to, you know, my friends and relatives that are living in other states.
0: So at what point did you bring on other people or investments? Like how quickly did that happen? Well, not that-
1: soon there um we opened a shop on mint plaza in san francisco and that was a a big deal because the day we opened i'd been talking to this journalist that wrote a lot about coffee for the new york times and gq and other places and he was this cafe had a lot of japanese style coffee gear um, that heretofore wasn't really seen in the United States. So he thought that was a very interesting moment in coffee. And so the day we opened, January 23rd, 2008, it was like front page of the New York Times food section. Wow. And so that was like a big moment. And the cafe was madness. It was fun, it was exhausting. It was so hard, like, cause we really like working so hard to get open on this day, making sure nobody was spilling the beans so Oliver could have his scoop it was exhausting and you know so fun and then we closed down like I was there I showed up there around 6 a.m left around 8 p.m and we were just like locking the door at the end and it was January 23rd and then I remember thinking it's like oh Thanksgiving the next day off I'll have is Thanksgiving (laughs) and it's January like trying to do the math it's like okay (laughs) that's a lot of days so that year was a big year and i found through this nonprofit called inner city advisors they set up small businesses based in oakland with pro bono business advice and the guy that was my advisor came from scharfenberger and he was really excited about blue bottle and he said well you want investor to like you know, open some more things. You need to talk to a Scharfenberger investor and his name was John Eastburn. And so this gentleman, John Eastburn, he came on as a minority investor in 2008 after we really had a proof of concept. We had two very profitable brick and mortars, wholesale, farmer's markets, web store, you know, so like all of these channels, I guess you call them, were, were very strong. And so he came in and he was, really you know a smart and modest person that sense of modesty i didn't realize how rare and precious that was Mm
0: -hmm. um
1: but he came in as minority investor and just really helped me make sensible decisions financial decisions helped sort of put all like the various numbers into place where they made sense i mean literally because the farmer's market was all cash in those days i would just like Drag like spend one night like one evening, like stacking up stacks of twenties, and then dash like dash. I'm going to help you count, and then push the stack of (laughs) twenties. I was like, oh, gotta start over, (laughs) and and then like take it to the bank, and and if it was over ten thousand dollars, which it was most of the time, like I'd have to like fill out this forms. Like, no, I'm not a money launderer. You know, all of those things. So, um, having some sense of, of financial, somebody I could trust to like get everything, um, in order without going crazy about, cause I, he introduced me to this woman, this wonderful woman, Angie Farrah, it was sort of semi-retired, but she liked helping companies and she was like a CFO by the hour. So I didn't have mm-hmm. to hire somebody at a big salary. She would just come in a few hours a week, like get the accounts all in order.
0: That's um, nice.
1: And it was a very inexpensive way to get um, very transparent about the accounting. Mm-hmm. And so that was minority investment. And then 2012, Brian Meehan came in with a group of – that was like the glossy roster of internet celebrities that came in in 2012. And that's when I went from uh, majority owner to minority owner there. Okay. And that's that's when a lot of the sort of the noteworthy investment – and and a major, major growth happened from 2012 to 2017.
0: So until 2012, it was you and your minority investor growing the brand and how was it like at home as your son grew up and as you got busier, like how did you manage it? What was your mental health and self-care like? (laughs) It was
1: precarious and, um, you know, pushed to the red line. I, you know, I, I, my first marriage blew up, um, a year into starting blue bottle. Uh, so that was really <laughs> untidy and draining. And it, you know, it, it was, it was just like, how much work could I do? How hard could I push myself? And I didn't want to not see my son every day. So I would like work crazy hours and then, you know, see my son. And then it, it it was good because then I started to delegate. I probably um, delegated more because of that. But <laughs> I remember this one moment, picking up my son from his mother's house, and he was little, maybe a year, maybe 16 months old. And it, it was early. I picked him up like at 6 a.m. I was gonna have like take care of him, have breakfast, take, take care of him for a few hours before I went back to work. I think I'd been roasting all night, and he he was just like, "You know, babies right? it's like so cuddly and warm, and my ex was mad at me about something and but I was holding my son, and I was so tired, and I just started she was like lecturing me about something, and I started falling asleep, <laughs> and it's like that is not a respectful thing to do is fall asleep when somebody's mad at you, actually, it makes them more mad, yeah." <laughs> Well, but it was just, I was so tired. And so that's for me, I think about like, if you're so tired that you can fall asleep while somebody's yelling at you, then that's pretty tired. And, you know, I don't want to glorify those times. Um, I pushed myself very hard and there were very much human costs to that. Um, but, you know, that's that's what I did. I perhaps could have done it in a kinder, or more evolved way. But, you know, those were the choices I made at the time. Those are the choices I thought I had to make at the time.
0: I mean, those are really real choices when you're growing a business and you're trying to make it all work and have a family. And I, a lot of times, most of the time, I have moms on that are growing their businesses and feel mom guilt while uh, doing yeah. it. All. And I think it's just so refreshing to have a dedicated dad on who's separating from their, you know, ex, but still wants to be involved with their son and their family and also grow this company and you have the bills to pay. And so I think, you know, it's just very real. And
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, I took him to like little gymnastics classes and took him all around, um, took him to the, I remember, you know, sometimes I would take it a little later, I would take him to the playground and still like falling asleep, I would sit down and sometimes it'd be the first time I'd sat down all day and if it was warm, San Francisco, rarely warm, but if it was kind of warm, like I would like find myself like nodding off on the bench and be like, Whoa, ah, where's my son? He stole yeah. you know, yeah. that. Worry that if I fell asleep for 30 seconds, somebody would be like scooping him away. Uh, mm-hmm. he, never got, he never got abducted, fortunately. Uh,
0: Such a big feat.
1: <laughs> but yeah. But but yeah yeah no i i mean it, it was very important for me to see him a lot and to be a, an important part of his life i changed a lot of diapers Um we went a lot of little trips to for work or for not to work and then when things got a little bit easier you know he was a very adventurous kid so he was like having sushi at high-end sushi bars in new york at age seven and, and dining <laughs> Black truffle dinners at Del Posto at age 10. Um, You know, so we've got a lot of good memories from from when it was a little less exhausting and just more fun.
0: Yeah. So, uh, would you say that up until like 2012 when Brian came in, like, was that the moment when you became minority that it gave you a little more ease and gave you more time and it was less stressful at that point? Yes.
1: Successful in a different way. You know, it's a real thing to go from majority to minority is a real thing. And anybody who has a business, you know, you should just know that Um, it's not the end of the world. It's not necessarily bad, but it is a big change. Don't let anybody tell you that it's, oh, it's just going to be better. It's, you know, it might be better in certain ways, but it's a big psychological step to go from majority to minority, especially if you're like really super controlling, as (laughs) I was.
0: I mean, like look at the stores that you created, you know, and it's very specific how they make the coffee. Everything just feels so beautiful and organized and you know you're gonna get typically like exactly what you're looking forward to. So that comes from the top and I'm sure it was like that from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Or trying or like, you know, dying a thousand deaths. Cause like some little thing didn't come out. Right. You know, I felt things very deeply, maybe more deeply than I should have or was healthy to feel. But, um, you know, that's, that's who I was. And, and, and those are the choices I made and, you know, and here I am on a ranch in Ohio. So that's, that's not a, a bad thing actually, but, but yeah, it, you know, so it's like, Certain things got easier after 2012, and certain things got more fun. Like, you know, all the acclaim, all the, like, it, it was a, once again, it was very good timing because that time, 2012 to 2017, it's nobody cared about being profitable. Nobody, like, yeah. it was all about growth. It was all about sort of if you had some cachet in your company and you could show a path to growing and it's like in a thousand years we'll be profitable you know it didn't matter and brian and the cfo at the time were very good at kind of selling that story to investors too Mm -hmm. and investors wanted to be sold in those days it's very different now so it was great in some ways and and then sort of frustrating because you know that's when the MBAs started coming and you know the valuations started to get higher and so psych- my psychology was like oh there's more to lose because I still didn't have very much in the way of assets my biggest asset was this you know these shares in Blue Bottle that were not liquid that you know I felt kind of chained to in a certain way yeah So the psychology got very complicated in a growing valuable business, but you don't get the money. So it's all like theoretical.
0: Did you, were you able to take, I mean, I don't know if this is too personal, but take money off the table. Yeah, I did. And
1: 2012 and then once more, you know, so, but still like the valuations go, you know, it's all in your head. It all happens in your head. It's not how much money your company's worth or how much exit it's like, it's all happening in your head. And that's what i wish somebody would have explained to me
0: yeah i mean i think that most people i mean you came from a musical background you started your business it was in farmers markets i mean you grew organically you obviously brought on someone who supported you and like being able to put pieces together in terms of growth um before 2012 but was that who really coached you on like how to raise what it's going to look like this is you know i think that a lot of people wonder uh, and don't know even much about the stock market in general or just anything like where it's like it's all numbers that are just changing all the time and what does it really mean obviously it's the way that our world is working but then it's also really confusing like what is it really backed by and it's all just like really interesting so
1: yeah it's confusing um you know, because there is a world, people come from this world of, you know, and I don't want to, you know, tar all MBAs as having the same outlook, but there's this, this world of people that are trained to kind of see value in these organic brands. What they can't do is generally is create something that is deeply meaningful and resonant to people. So they look, For those things. And then what creative founders can't really do is think about how to explain their business in a way that can fit on an Excel spreadsheet or a pitch deck. And so it's it's a, a, you know, we need each other. But then, you know, what happens when. When the creative founder feels a little bit left out of the loop of the raise or what happens when the VCs that have put so much money in feel like the resentment coming from the creative founder, you, you know, it, it's easy for things to, to go in a, a way that doesn't feel good for, yeah. for either party. I mean, right now, I think being profitable is really, really important to attracting investors in a way that it never was when I was in those days in blue bottle
0: yeah i was just gonna ask that was my next question because i hear you know i'm in that process of working on a raise and i hear about that how just like the landscape has changed and Mm -hmm. sequoia capital has put together a deck that's making everyone you know telling people to get to profitability asap because that's what you're going to need in order to survive the next few years and it's like a like you said, a completely different landscape than when you became minority and it was all about like getting customer acquisition and did it at any cost and growing the brand that way and growing stores and whatever. So I think it's an interesting time. And I'm curious because you've been on both ends. And obviously, I don't know what Blue Bottle is like now, but you came from a very profitable place.
1: Yeah. Blue Bottle was profitable for the first 10 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like if you were still, you know, if you had a brand that you were majority owner of right now, or you were in a startup, what you would, what you would do or what you would recommend if someone's not profitable?
1: Try to sell more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm helping uh- like
0: everything's becoming more expensive in terms of customer acquisition as well. Like at the same time it's more expensive to advertise, right? It's more expensive mm-hmm. to do actually anything to like breathe and drive, it's more expensive. So like what, yeah, as a whole, you know?
1: Yeah, what are the ways you can acquire customers without having to pay Mark Zuckerberg for it? Yeah. Because you know, I, fortunately, I never had that, that in, in you know, nobody, if somebody would have told me that that was gonna be necessary, I would have been like, that's stupid. So in in a sense, like brick and mortar is very valuable because everybody walking past is a potential customer, mm-hmm. you know? So going back to basics and not, if your business is predicated on Instagram ads then that's a tough place to be even when things were easier and Instagram ads were cheaper or whatever, it's still tough cause it's out of your control. The thing I liked about the early days of blue bottle, the first 10, 12 years, was so much was about us, like you open a store, you know, and you open at 7 a.m. and you start making drinks, and if people like the drinks, they will come back. Yeah. If you roast the coffee well over and over again, people will order more, and it was really pretty simple in, in that sense. It wasn't about like, oh, has the algorithm changed, and I'm getting fewer likes, you know, know. that's that's think somebody yeah, that I would ne- I would hate to worry about that. Because yeah, there's I mean, a lot to worry about. It's like, oh, is a an employee gonna sue me? Is somebody gonna trip <laughs> in my store and sue you know, there's plenty of things to worry about, but at least it's kind of under your own control.
0: Yeah, not oh gosh, they changed the algorithm because people were making too much money, so now we won't get any it's not like someone, it's not, it's kind of like closing your store. All of a sudden, no one can find you. Right. right? Yeah. No one sees you anymore. Whereas if you have a physical location, they're going to come back and they can taste it. They can right. smell it. It's such a different experience. Yeah. And yeah. now it's all about looks versus like what the actual product really does. So
1: it's yeah. really, yeah. or who on the internet has recommended it. You know, it's like so many people, it's like, are like hoping for just like one minute Gwyneth Paltrow mentions their brand one time. And it's like, God, hopefully like you know, that's so that's- external. Yeah. 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 You have no control over what Gwyneth Paltrow likes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing now? Like in 2012, you became minority. When did you move to Ohio? Are you there full time?
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. And you know, it was quite a ride up from 2012 that I had always wanted to open in Japan. So in 2015, January of 2015, we opened in Tokyo and that was huge, huge, huge and just fun. Yeah. You know, opening in Japan, the, the team there at the time, the team there now was very, very good. The team there at the time were just great, beautiful spirits. The store, just the GCs and the architects in Japan. If you build stores or remodel kitchens, <laughs> you, you know, like dealing with American GCs, it's just torture. It's just torment. Mm-hmm. And so, just the the pleasantness of working with these talented people in Japan, both in on the Blue Bottle team and externally, just to see how the carpenters work, see how the just the lines. The tile work—that was great. That was a highlight. Um, Six-hour lines when we opened. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a thing, and so that that was really fun. And then you know there were a lot of expansion in the U.S., which kind of got less fun because you are not working with Japanese GCs and Japanese architects in Washington D.C. and Boston and stuff like that. So you know, there is. I think businesses get founded in poetry and scaled in prose sometimes and so that was the start of kind of a prosaic time in blue bottle which got less interesting to me and then yeah and then the nestle thing happened in october of 2017 and that was a thing let me tell you what happened (laughs) oh nestle bought blue bottle
0: Oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Me just being blind. Wow. You've
1: been opening your business and raising kids, so no worries. Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, that's so funny. That's crazy. I didn't realize that. How did that
1: Oh, it was a relief because I was ready. Um, I was not happy or settled in Blue Bottle at that time the last year or so. I was not feeling very good to me. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and then, so that seemed like just a, a great way to like have my, and I know my kids are not going to have to get student loans and I won't be eating cat food when I'm old. So <laughs> those, those are good things, right? And you can't, in this country, you can't guarantee those things, you know, which is sobering.
0: It's interesting because you have a baby essentially, but this baby just like goes on. And I mean, everyone lives their own life and makes their own decisions, but like, what's that like? It was, to have that as a legacy in a way that you'd have zero control over.
1: Right. It's I mean, it's hard. I tell people like, you know, I don't wipe my teenagers butt anymore. Also, I also have a almost seven year old and a five year old. So there's been a lot of babies in my life.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, it, you know, it, it's hard. It's been nice actually being in San Francisco during that whole thing was not that fun. And so it's been nice. My wife grew up in Ohio and once again, we had good timing. We were, she, my, she, she got diagnosed with Lyme disease, which was very, she was very sick for a long time. and Nobody knew what it was. And then she got her diagnosis and we were about to move to Tokyo, but we bought a piece of land and designed a house, but you don't move to Tokyo for your health. Right? So we moved back to, Ohio, found a nice ranch. She's doing much, much better now. Which is great. Lyme disease is a long and ugly road, but she's doing much better. Uh, And yeah, and and so, 2018 we moved to Ohio once again. Good timing, like nine months before the COVID. Yeah. Ohio Ohio quarantine. No.
0: Good timing for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Lucky that way. Um, Yeah, that's the best piece of business advice you could give. Right? Have good timing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm helping a friend, a San Francisco friend, with his spirits company, uh, direct to consumer, very pure, very transparent, beautifully sourced spirits. So I've been doing that. Hopefully, this thing in Arts District with Blue Bottle will help, will happen. That will be a cool little thing. And then um, doing a little consulting.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. All from Ojai while raising your kids.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's
0: wonderful. And that's like what day-to-day looks like. Is it more like, you know, every day you're kind of like working on the little projects and consulting or?
1: Yeah, I'm starting in 2017. Well, I had this health issue around the time that Nestle bought (laughs) the company. I wonder how that happened. Yeah. I was very resistant to seeing a connection at the time, Um, but I changed I like started to lose my hearing, which really sucked, and wow. was getting word from the doctors that maybe it's not going to get better. And so I changed my diet quite radically. And st- I had started studying Muay Thai at that time. So I just sort of like doubled down Muay Thai. And then my hearing came back. Um, and wow. along the way, like I lost a lot of weight because it, you know, it'd been basically 10 years of tasting menus. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun, but it adds up. Um, yeah, I couldn't walk past a patisserie. So having a reason to eat certain foods and not eat certain others was good, um, healthy.
0: What do you eat, just out of curiosity? Now,
1: well, well also with Caitlin's Lyme disease, it also dictated a, like a very rigorous approach because yeah. um, you know it's all about inflammation. Lyme disease is all about inflammation, so it was a very strict, and we're still quite strict. Although I can have my fun, and she can have her fun every once in a while too. Um, so it's like basically no grains, very little eggs, plenty of meat, plenty of vegetables, no dairy, no sugar. Um, yeah, what am I leaving out? Uh, those are the big ones. Nuts.
0: What about nuts? You can have nuts?
1: Yeah, yeah, God, plenty of nuts. Um, yeah, so you know it's a pretty healthy way to live, actually. So I don't, it didn't, you know, when there's a reason for it, when there's a compelling reason for it, it doesn't seem like a sacrifice. It seems like a gift that you figured out what to eat to make your body better. What about
0: kids? Do they eat the same way?
1: Yeah, well, my oldest or not my oldest, the oldest girl, seven-year-old, she has Lyme also, probably got it in utero. So she has to be be quite, we have to be quite rigorous with her diet still. And when we do that, it's, you know, otherwise she'll have brain inflammation. And, and so like quite, it can be quite volatile, Vesuvian, even her temperament. Um, So just learning about her body and what foods uh, are good for her body has been Mm -hmm. quite amazing. And then the five-year-old, he loves chocolate croissants. And so the challenge is to sort of negotiate (laughs) the difference between what um, he wants and what she wants.
0: (laughs) Um, have you guys heard of B venom therapy?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's made the biggest difference in my wife's health.
0: that's Actually, awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We had, um, Holly Owens on the podcast a little while ago and she, it was really interesting cause she, um, has talked about her Lyme condition for a long time, but then she finished B venom therapy and then that was a whole experience too, to just kind of like be attached to that being part of her life. And, mm. and then like not needing to do it anymore and so it's all just really interesting but i know a few people with limes and
1: yeah yeah that's been the biggest single thing she's worked with oh, what's her last name brooke i forget her last name has this you know this very like you look at mold you look at trauma you look at sleep you like you have to hit it from every side and mm-hmm. if you and lucky and privileged enough to be able to afford all these healing modalities, then there's a good chance you can get to the other side.
0: Does your daughter do it, or is it kind of too intense? Um,
1: she's too young. She's too young. Yeah. Like a lot of diet um, stuff works for her. And That's so, awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks so much, James, for joining us. I really appreciate you sharing about your journey, and it's so beautiful to see a dedicated dad and nice. Um, Just how much you love your family. I love that so much.
1: That's good. Good, good. Yeah, yeah, it's important. Those are things I do not regret.